Well, good morning, Genesis. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing well? Good. Well, I'm glad that you're here. My name is Jerry, and I am the campus pastor here in Carmel. And if you're new or visiting, we're especially glad to have you here with us today. Last weekend, my wife Casey and I took our four kiddos on a trip deep into southern Indiana to visit some family. And while we were there, I got invited to a party at my cousin's house. He had some folks over. We were going to hang out. And I was excited to catch up with people that I hadn't seen in a while. My youngest brother, Daniel, was there. My brother-in-law, John, was there. And just lots of other friends and family that I hadn't seen in a long time. So this was a really exciting trip for me. And while we were there, we were hanging out. We do what you do when you get together. You kind of shoot the breeze and you tell stories. And we stumbled onto stories of things that we did when we were younger that were dumb, right? We all have those stories. And somehow we started talking about just, I don't know, just things that happen in your family and in life. And my youngest brother, Daniel, goes on to share this story. I'd heard him tell it before, uh, where he and my dad got into an argument. And we've all been there before, right? And he wanted to retaliate against my dad. He wanted to get my dad back in, in, a, in a really big way. And I think we can all relate to that, right? But my brother wanted to hit my dad where it hurt. So here's what you need to know about my dad. My dad is very handy. He can fix anything. And he also has a green thumb, so he can grow anything. So if ever there was a human that could plant a Skittle into the ground and have it produce fruit, my dad would be that guy. He can just grow anything. And so my brother knew this, and so he wandered into our barn, and he grabbed a hacksaw. He was going to go into the backyard and kill a plant that my dad had been growing. And he set his eyes on my dad's 60-foot grape arbor. And he thought, I'm just... Now, he, he planned this out, and I still think this is so diabolical. I cannot believe he did this to my dad. But he went, and he thought, there's a couple of vines. I'm going to cut this one, because it's only going to harm this little piece to the side. I don't want to kill the whole thing, just this side. And so he cut the vine. And and here's the thing, when he cut it, it didn't separate, it just kind of rested on top of itself. So my dad was not going to know for weeks this was just going to play out. This was premeditated. Well, then he walks away and he forgets all about it. Several weeks go by and he didn't think anything of it until he heard my dad like distressed one day. And he's like, I cannot figure out what's going on. All my grapes are dying. And my brother remembers, oh, wait a minute. And he runs out and to his horror, he hadn't just killed a small portion. He killed the whole thing, all 60 feet of grapes. And here's the thing. This was a big deal. My dad grows things, and he had used those grapes when I was a kid to make his own wine. He had had them for like 30-plus years. Now, my little brother got away with lots of things, and I don't know what the end of that story was, but can you imagine? Now, if you've been tracking with us for the last several weeks, you understand what that story has to do with what we've been talking about. We're in this series called One Thing, where we've been talking about the one thing that Jesus wanted his followers to remember in his final conversation with them, in his last night with them on earth. And this one thing, as it turns out, has everything to do, not just with following God or knowing Jesus, but it has everything to do with experiencing the life that Jesus has for us, the fruitful, joyful, peaceful life that he wants for us. And maybe the best way to summarize this one thing that Jesus wanted to impart to his disciples on that night can be found in chapter 15 of John's gospel. That's where we've been hanging out for these last several weeks. That's where we're going to be today. If you're not familiar with John, John was one of Jesus's closest friends and followers when he walked the earth. And so when John writes his gospel, he's giving us an eyewitness account. He was there. He's telling us these are the words that Jesus said. And in John 15, Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, as he's telling this one thing to them, he uses the analogy of a grape vine, its branches, and its fruit. And in John 15, 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine, 
and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And according to Jesus, the one thing that has everything to do with a meaningful life in him is for us to abide or to remain in him. In fact, 11 times in John 15, Jesus uses these words, abide, 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 remain, remain, remain. And so you get the point that he just wants this one thing to settle in their minds. You must abide. You must remain in me. And so one of the questions we've been asking for the last several weeks is, well, what does it mean to remain or abide? What, what does that even look like? And one of the things we've discussed is that the Greek word that was used here in the New Testament is the word meno, and it means to stay, to remain, to dwell, to rest in, to continue, to be present. And the best way for us to think about remaining and abiding, we've said, is it means staying relationally connected to Jesus, just staying relationally connected to him. And over and over again, Jesus makes it clear that when we stay relationally connected to him, he wants to use our lives to bring glory to God, to bear much fruit. And like a branch, any lasting fruit of any value comes when it stays connected to the vine. And the same is true for us. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branch. Stay connected to me. And he says this, your connectedness to me will lead to fruitfulness for me. That's an amazing promise that he gives us, and that should encourage us. But at the same time, Jesus also warned that apart from him, we can do nothing. Without him, without staying connected to him, we can do nothing. We're just like that grapevine in my dad's backyard that was severed. Once it was severed, it withered, and it was useful for firewood. In fact, it had to be torn down. It did not produce after that, and Jesus says, the same is true for me. If you get separated from me, you will do nothing that will have any kind of eternal impact. And I know that's a really sobering thought, but that's just the reality of Jesus's words here. It's the one thing that he wanted his disciples to remember. You have to stay connected to me. And so that's been our challenge in this series, not for each one of us individually, but for also for us as a church family to remain connected to him. We want that to be our number one prayer in pursuit in life. And so many of us have been praying through Psalm 27.4 that says, this one thing I ask God is to dwell in your presence, to stay connected to you. And I'm going to be honest with you, the more I pray that really simple prayer, the more I'm finding that in my day-to-day -day life, he shows up and reminds me, Jerry, stay connected to me. You're starting to disconnect. Or did you see that, Jerry? That's because you're connected to me. That's what we've been pursuing for these last several weeks. So if you're like me, you're probably thinking, okay, I can wrap my head around staying relationally connected to Jesus. I get that. I have other relationships. But what does it look like practically? I mean, in a, on a day-to-day -day basis, what does it really look like to abide in Jesus? How can I abide in Jesus? And thankfully, Jesus goes on to explain what this looks like in John 15, 9. He says this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. He uses this word again. And according to Jesus, learning to abide in him leads us to love him more. Think about that. Learning to abide in him, to stay connected to him, leads us to love him more. That makes sense when you think about it relationally, right? But then he says this, remain in my love. So what does it mean to remain in his love? Now, I want you to take a moment and I want you to think about someone that you love dearly and someone that loves you. Who comes to your mind? 
Maybe it's a spouse or your child, a parent, grandparent, boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend. Who comes to your mind? And what does it mean? What does it look like to remain in their love? For me, I think about my wife and my kids. I love these people more than anyone else on the whole planet. And I, when I think about remaining in, in love with them and, them and them with me, I just think about our continued faithfulness to one another no matter what, right? That's just what we're committed to as a family. And if you've ever been around our family, it is no secret we are not perfect. We have our low moments where we do not always agree. In fact, my wife and I host a small group in our house on Thursday nights with a bunch of 20-somethings, and some are married, some are not. Some will, will hopefully be married one day, and we just tease my wife and I. We say, we are madly in love. And sometimes we focus more on the mad part than the love, but we're madly in love with one another. And no matter what, we will pick at each other, we'll argue, but we are committed that no matter what happens, we're going to stay in love. And it, it takes work. And I think the same thing is true with our kiddos. We would tell you that we love our kids so much that we could just eat them up sometimes. And sometimes we wish we had, you know, because they just push our buttons and drive us crazy. And we're like, oh my gosh, you guys, what are you doing? Right? You understand that. We laugh because that's what having a real relationship is like. But no matter what happens, no matter what is said or what is done, no matter who overreacts when something is wrong, we're committed to making it right. We wanna, we're, we're, we're trying to teach our kids, you need to go back and seek forgiveness, and you need to be willing to give forgiveness. And I think when we do that as a family, we're modeling what it means to remain in one another's love. And I'm going to be honest, and you know this, is it ever easy? No, it's not easy, is it? It's not fun, and it's always humbling, but these are the people that you love, and so you know it's, it's worth it. What else, what else would you do? And so when I think about it that way, it makes sense in terms of the people that are near and dear to me, but I still have this question, what does it mean to remain in Jesus's love? And, and I just have something to confess to all of you, and this is really awkward as a pastor. I've never seen Jesus with my eyes, okay? Maybe you have, I haven't. I have no, I've seen renderings. I, get a, I have a rough idea of what I think he might look like in my head based on some paintings that I've seen, but I've never seen him with my eyes, so what does it mean to remain in his love? And I would want to be clear with you that I believe he is exactly who he says he is. He's the one and only son of God. He's sent from heaven. He came to this earth as a man. He died to pay for my sins. I believe all that. I believe that he's going to do what he promises to do. He's going to return to judge the living and the dead. And so I want to remain faithful to him. And I just keep wondering, how do I remain in his love until I get to meet him face to face? And I think we've all probably wondered that. It seems like a legitimate question. And thankfully, Jesus, in John 15, he gives us an answer to this question. He helps us understand how we can remain in his love until we get to meet him. He says this to his disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, I like the way the New Living Translation says this. It's very similar, but it's just a little different. He says this, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments, and I remain in his love. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm starting to get somewhere here, right? Because Jesus finally makes it clear that love for him is expressed in our obedience to him. If I want to show him that I love him, he's saying, I need you to obey me. Because when he says, when you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. And so abiding in Jesus leads us to love him more, and loving Jesus leads us to want to obey him. And so I want you to think of that phrase. Loving Jesus leads us to obey him. And on the surface, 
it sounds easy enough, right? But I think Jesus, he uses some very strategic words here so that if we're ever wondering, well, what does it mean? How, how do I know if I'm remaining or abiding? He uses some very specific words. In verse 10, he says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And I think that phrase, keep my commandments, in that phrase, he's giving us the secret or the key. If you wanna know how to abide, you keep my commandments. The Greek word that's used there, means to keep, to observe, to watch, to attend to carefully or to take care of or to give watchful care. So I want you to take a moment and I want you to think about some things in your life that you keep a close eye on. What do you watch very carefully? For me, it's this thing. I always have a watchful eye. I know where this thing is all the time. This is like my fifth child right here. If I lose this, I panic, right? There will be an Amber Alert. I keep a close watch on my phone. It's my alarm clock, and when I wake up in the morning, I immediately look at it and say, what, is there any breaking news overnight? Some of us keep a close eye on social media to see who posted what. Some of us keep a close eye on the weather before we walk out the door every morning. If you or your wife have ever had a baby, you keep a close eye on contractions, right? Why? Because the closer they get together and the more intense they become, you know you're going to have a baby soon. Some of us keep a close watch on the stock market. My wife keeps a close watch on Facebook Marketplace to see who's selling what in their home so we can bring it into ours. We all have things that we keep, that we just watch like a hawk. If you have children and you take them to the park, you watch them closely because you don't want them to disappear or you don't want them to get hurt. We have these things in our life that we know we need to observe and watch carefully because if we don't, what happens? We're going to get distracted. We're going to miss out on a sale. We're going to miss a turn when we're driving somewhere. Our kids are going to go missing or get hurt or worse yet. If you're not paying attention, the baby's born in the living room and not the delivery room, and you have a real mess on your hands, right? There are things in life that you have to have a laser focus on, things that we cannot afford to get distracted from. And I think this is the point that Jesus is making when he says, keep my commandments. He's saying, I want you to keep a watchful eye on them. Don't get distracted. Don't take your eyes off of them, but instead pay careful attention to them. And in fact, I think you could argue that he's saying, I want you to treasure them. I want you to treasure them. So why was this so important to Jesus? Was he a control freak? Is he a control freak? Does he just want us to obey him so he can control us? I really don't think that's the case. I never see that being true for him. I think he knows that keeping his commandments is essential to us staying relationally connected to him. And so here's another question. Well, then what are Jesus's commandments? What are they? Now, if you know me at all, if you've worked with me or if you've just been around me for any point, any amount of time, you will know this about me very quickly. I cannot live in the details. If you give me a bunch of details, my brain turns to mush and I I shut down. And so imagine my surprise when I learned that during his three and a half year ministry on earth, Jesus gave his disciples over 200 commands that they had to follow. Have you ever tried to memorize over 200 of anything? That just sounds overwhelming. 200, really, Jesus? Like, oh my goodness. Now, to his credit, he cut it way down because in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Jews had like 613 commands and laws that they had to keep. So he cut it down by two-thirds. That's pretty good, right? But I know know that Jesus' commands are supposed to be good for me, but I'm going to be honest. Isn't it just easy to assume that they're negative and harsh? Like it would start with, you can't have ice cream or chocolate, 
and don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that. We just assume they're all negative. And, and the more I think about it, I, I just assume that they're going to be impersonal, cold, or rigid. They're going to be impossible to keep. It's easy for us to view God's commandments a lot like government laws. In order to be good, upstanding, law-abiding citizens, you have to obey the law to a T. And if you don't, what happens? If you break the law, you get punished. You get arrested or you get thrown in jail. Which, by the way, I have a really good story about Paul Mumal that I don't have time to tell you about right now. Ask him about it later. He's dying to tell you all about it. Now, the truth is that God's laws, they're not meant to be rigid or impersonal. They're not meant to be impossible for us to follow. Instead, God wanted them to be like personal teachings or instructions that come from a caring parent to their child. And the goal was to help us understand how life works best in order for us to receive the blessings that God wants. He doesn't want to harm us or frustrate us. He wants to help us. And throughout Scripture, we see God as our Heavenly Father desiring to bless his children so that we can experience the fullness of life that he wants for us. But again, let's be honest. Does anybody here enjoy being under the authority of anyone else, even if it's God? I have yet to meet that person that says, oh, I'm so glad to be under your authority, right? It's just, and then when it comes to God's word and thinking about having it being authoritative in our lives, I just... It, I think we all assume it's not going to give me life. It's going to take life away. There's not going to be any enjoyment. He just doesn't want me to do anything. And we live in a culture that says, just everybody do what's right in your own eyes. We'll figure it out along the way. And that's really not working so well. Because we mistakenly think that God's authority is there to hurt us. But Jesus makes it really clear that there are two paths in this life that we can choose. We can choose our path where we get to do whatever we want. And Jesus warns. He says, look, that's fine, but that will lead to death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death, where you will be eternally separated from your heavenly Father. So he says, that's a path. Or there's the second path where we can learn to live life the way that God intends, which leads to life. And that's not just a better life in heaven someday with God. That's better life right now. And God's commandments are our instructions to know how to live that life and stay on the path of life. And so with that in mind, look back at what Jesus says in John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. He says, look, this is how I have this amazing relationship with my heavenly father. I want the same for you. And then here's the verse that popped for me this week. I don't have it for, for you on the slides, but listen to this. In verse 11, Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Think about that. He says, when you obey my commands, you'll be joyful. You'll be thankful. You'll, you will take hold of this life that I want for you. And again, I realize in theory, this sounds simple. And in practice, we all know it's hard. And I think Jesus knew that was the case because in that final conversation on that night with his disciples, when he was imparting all this to them, he really drove this point home. If you didn't know this, if you read the gospel of John, John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are one long conversation. And John was there recording the whole thing for us. And listen to what Jesus says one chapter before in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Now, that's pretty straightforward, right? 
In fact, if you're a parent, I want to encourage you to, ch- to use that on your kids. Hey, honey, do you love me? Well, yes, daddy, of course I love you. Good. I need you to obey me, right? How do you argue with that logic? I think Jesus knew, like, you can't argue with this logic. If you love me, you will obey my commands. But then look at what he says just a few verses later in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keep them, he is the one who loves me. And apparently this message really resonated with the apostle John because he didn't just write this gospel of John. If you look at the end of the New Testament, there's three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in this theme he shares with us over and over again, look at these passages from 1st John 2, 3. He says this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. And in 1st John 3, 24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. That's abiding language. And then 1st John 5, 3, he says this, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. It just feels like John wants us to really get this point. You cannot abide in Jesus without obeying his commands. If you want to love him, you have to obey him. The two go hand in hand. And here's the thing that I love about Jesus. He wouldn't ask us to do anything that he wouldn't already be willing to do for us. Because we here at Genesis, we believe that Jesus is our model for life and ministry. And look at what he said in John 14, 31. He says, I love, the fa- I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus says, look, I'm not even calling the shots when I'm here. I'm doing exactly what my Father commands me to do. Jesus knew that if we pay careful attention to his instructions for life, if we treasure his teachings, if, the, if we live the way he tells us to live, we will experience the life that God intends for us. And not only that, he guarantees he will use our life to bear fruit for him. And so here's a really good question. How did Jesus keep God's commands? How did he do it? Now, the easy answer is to say, well, come on, he's Jesus. I mean, he's God in the flesh. He helped write those commands. So this was easy for him. He wrote the laws. And I would want you to know at Genesis, we believe that's partially true. But here's the whole truth. We believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, the one and only son of God. And we believe at some point in eternity past, he's existed for all eternity, but at some point he decided to leave the comforts of heaven and to come to this earth and to be born as a helpless baby and to grow up as a boy and to mature into manhood. And in all along, he experienced life just like you and I. He was fully God and fully man, but he never leaned into that God part for 33 years. He lived to experience life just like you and I. So when he says, I have obeyed my father's commands, he has. And so the question is, well, how does he obey his father's commands? I think think he did it by meditating on God's word. I think he read it. I think he memorized it. I think he hid it in his heart so that when the time came, he had it there with him. And to be fair, it would be nice if there was a passage in the New Testament that said, and the disciples saw Jesus memorizing scripture. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that every morning at 6 a.m. he woke up and did this. It doesn't, we don't get that. But what we do get are examples of him doing it. So at 30 years old, he's baptized. He's going to begin his ministry. And right after being baptized, he's taken into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit where he's going to be, he's going to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's fasting in the wilderness, who shows up? Satan, the enemy of God. And on three different occasions, Satan comes to tempt Jesus, to challenge his authority, to question his identity. 
And every time Jesus had the opportunity to say, Satan, you know better than that. He didn't, he didn't use his own words. What we have in scripture, Jesus says this, it is written. God's word says this. He did not respond in his own power. And let's be clear, he didn't have his Bible app on his phone where he's like, uh, it is written. He didn't do that. He didn't have a scroll tucked in his robe. It was hidden in his heart so that in the moment he could rely on what God had said was true. So for me, I just have to believe he meditated on God's word. God's word was center stage in his life. And throughout his life, we see 80 different times that he quotes scripture to give an answer to explain why he's doing what he's doing. I just think he had an intimate relationship with God's word. But then think about this. In his moment of greatest despair, when he's hanging on a cross, he's been beaten, he's bleeding, he's naked. He doesn't even use his own words. He goes back to Psalm 22 and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think Jesus had such an intimate relationship with God's word that in, in his deepest, darkest moments and even on the highest points, it was God's word that was flowing through him because Jesus knew that real life comes through abiding and abiding leads to loving and loving leads to obeying and obeying comes through knowing and meditating on God's word. And so here's a question. What does it mean to meditate on God's word? What's that look like? It might freak some of us out. Synonyms for meditate that I found this week are contemplate, think about, consider, ponder, reflect, deliberate, ruminate on. Here's a, here's a definition that we like to use here at Genesis. Biblical meditation is thinking about and praying through scripture over and over again so that we can know who God is and understand his ways and follow his leadership. It's thinking about and praying through scripture over and over again so that we can know who God is and understand his ways and learn to follow his leadership. Now, BibleProject.com has a great quote on this that I really like. It says this, biblical meditation is about filling our hearts and minds with the divine. It's the practice of entering into the text by reading it and rereading it out loud, allowing it to speak to us in such a way that we listen and truly hear it. We fix and order our minds around the text until the key words, phrases, and ideas jump off the page at us. Then we chew on these words and ideas and we begin to form questions that lead us into deeper reflection. And this causes us to slow down and experience the text in a way that affects our hearts and our minds with the love of God. Now, those are two really good definitions and quotes about biblical meditation, but here's the most important thing that any one of us need to know about biblical meditation. We stay connected to Jesus by meditating on his word. He said, you keep my commands. We have to meditate on his word. Don't just read it. I would say don't even know it. Meditate, it. Oh, I'll meditate on it over and over and over again. And so while we wrap up today, I just want to give you some personal tips on what I think this can look like in our every day lives, because some of us need to learn this, and some of us maybe need to relearn this, but the goal is to stay connected to Jesus. And so the first thing, if you want to write this down, this is really simple, make time. You have to make time. And I don't know about you, if I don't make time, I probably won't take time. And it doesn't have to be the same time all the time. It doesn't have to be the same amount of time all the time, but make time to be with God. And then as you make time to be with him, ask yourself this question, 
what is on my heart? What's on my heart? What's stressing me out? What's weighing on my mind? What do I need God's help with? And these don't have to be negative things. Okay, that it doesn't have to be like this terrible, awful thing. Maybe you have a desire in your heart or a hope or a dream and you want his help. For me recently, some of the things that I've been praying about and asking for help for is I need help as a parent because I have two boys that are approaching their teenage years and I need guidance on how to be a better dad to teenagers. And I want to be ready now for when we get there. And, and I'm going to be real honest with you. I need God's help in serving my wife better because I am really selfish and I just expect her to want to do what I want to do. And I need God's guidance on being more selfless. And, and I'm probably the only guy in the room that struggles with this one, but I struggle with confidence in my abilities on the one hand and then arrogance and pride on the other, wanting to be right and wanting to win and wanting to be the best. And sometimes I'm like, ah, I'm not good enough. And sometimes I think, man, it's too bad. Everybody's not as good as me. God help me. That's a terrible place to live. It's a terrible place to live. And so we ask that question, and then we jump into God's word. But right before we jump in, we just pray and say, God, that's it. That's what it is. I know you can help me. This is the source of life for me. Teach me. Show me. And then you jump in. And this is going to look different for every one of us. Maybe for you, you're going to jump in and you're going to read a book of the Bible, a letter, and, and you're going to read until God stops you and a word jumps out. And it might be the most simple word, but he's going to say, stop and pay attention. Read that again. Write that down. Memorize that. I, I don't know. For me, I'm reading through 1 Corinthians right now. And I'm reading real slow, but I'm reading and I'm reading it again and again. And I feel like Paul, honestly, is talking to me. I feel like I'm sitting in the Corinthian church saying, oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. I'm meditating on 1 Corinthians, and it's helping me. But maybe some of us... Maybe you need to learn how to like, do a word search and focus in on a very specific thing. And there are fantastic tools that you can use, BibleGateway.com or BlueLetterBible.com. In fact, this week I went to Bible Gateway, and this is how you can do a word search. You can go to Bible Gateway, and you can click on Study, and then you're going to get this drop-down, and you can see Topical Index or Keyword Search. And I just typed in the word Anxiety. What's it going to give me for anxiety? And then this is the, this is the passages of the Scripture that came up. And there were, there were pages of them. And so if you struggle with anxiety or greed or lust, or if you need encouragement or peace, type it in, and these passages are going to come up. And now you can begin to meditate on these scriptures. You can look at them, and you can listen to them, and you can let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is, is our guide to teach us what we need to know. And so you can do a word search like this, and you can See what he has to say about you. And just like Jesus, when those temptations come, you can go back to those passages and say, no, that's not true. This is true. It is written. This, this is what is written. And then after looking and after listening, then it's time to do the hard part. You have to respond in obedience. You got to be willing to do, if you're going to keep his commands and love him and abide in him, you got to do whatever he's going to ask you to do. And so what's he going to ask you to do? He might say, I just need you to rest and what I'm telling you is true right now. Or he might say, I need you to go do something about this circumstance. I might need you to share it with someone. Or he might say, I need you to change the way that you're living. Now, I hope that's a helpful tool for you. We've got at our info hub, we've got a sheet of paper and it's called a soap study. And it's the same things I just walked you through where it's going to teach you how to observe scripture, I'm sorry, scripture, observe, action step of obedience and prayer. It's going to walk you through step by step how to do that. 
And I hope that you'll take us up on that offer. They're out there. I hope they're all gone after services today. But here's the point. Jesus says, you have to abide in me. You have to keep my commands. Now, this last week in our, in our group, in our home, uh, we've been doing this study. And for the last two weeks, we have had some of the richest conversations uh, with these young people that are asking very honest questions. And my friend who's in there, who's a brand new follower of Jesus, this was his question. He goes, I get it. I need to abide in Jesus. I need to stay relationally connected. But outside of reading my Bible and listening to podcasts of sermons, what else do I need to do? And everybody kind of went around the room and talked. And, and they were trying to, thinking through this together. And while they were talking, I just, I felt like God gave me this image of what this looks like in my own life. And I, and I looked at my friend and I said, here's what I, I don't know, here's, what, here's the best thing I can tell you. When I met my wife 20 years ago, I loved learning everything there was to learn about her. I mean, I would ask her questions and we were together. I just loved learning about her. But at this stage in our marriage, you know what my favorite thing about my wife is? When we put the kids to bed and I'm sitting on the couch and I'm reading a book or I'm watching TV, she'll come and she'll just sit real close to me and we can sit and not say a word. And I said, I think that's abiding. We're learning to abide in one another. And that's what I think, maybe that's what you need to do. Forget what you think you can do and just sit and be with him. Then when you meditate on his word, it's going to light up. And, and I want to encourage all of you, all of us to do that. That's the season I am in right now where I am showing up with a cup of coffee in the mornings and I'm just sitting here and I'm like, Jesus, I just want to hear from you. And sometimes in the moment, he'll give me a word or sometimes throughout the day, I, I can go back to that dark living room and I'll remember and I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm just doing my best to abide. In, in verse three of John 15, Jesus says this to his disciples, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And that word, word, means all my teachings. You're clean because you believe my teachings. And the same that is true for them is true for us. You don't have to do anymore. You trust in him. He makes you clean. So I don't know where you're at in your relationship with him, but Jesus says, abide in me. We are crazy. We're crazy to not take him up on that offer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for its power. I thank you that it's true, that it's proven itself to be true over and over and over and over again. And I thank you for John, that he was there to, recur, to, to record these words, Jesus. Would you help us, Jesus, to remain in you? Would you teach us to learn to meditate on your word? Would you help us to learn to abide by just sitting and being in your presence? Would you change our perspective from what the world says is you got to go and get it yourself? You say, no, 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 you just abide in me and I will bear much fruit in you. Please help us. Holy Spirit, would you teach us to slow down? Would you help us to unplug? Would you prune us from all the things that distract us so we would learn to keep your commands in the different lives? We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.